Let's open them to Revelation chapter 22. This evening we come to the final chapter in the book of Revelation, and when we're through with this study, we will have completed uh, more than three and a half years. We're about three and a half years in now, and I hope to be finished somewhere around maybe the end of February. It might go a little bit longer to the end of March, and then we'll be finished with the book of Revelation, and when we're done with that... We'll all close our Bibles and go home because we've learned all there is to learn. And I hope you don't take that as a serious statement because uh, we are never going to be through mining the depths of Scripture. There's just so much here to find out that I know that we're going to be studying the Word of God until we die or until Jesus comes again. And if we uh, die before he does come back, we do know that there will be another generation that comes after us, and they will uh, be amazed, as we are, about the Word of God and the rich things that we find in his Word. I want to read to you the first five verses of chapter 22, and we're going to begin a, another multi-part sermon this evening entitled, Life in the New Jerusalem. Uh, Revelation 22, verse number 1 And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, there was there a tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servant shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. You may notice that these first five verses bring us back to some very familiar themes. J.A. Sice wrote this. He said, Very noteworthy is it that these last glimpses of a finished redemption end up with the same images which the first chapter of human history began. All worlds move in circles, and the grand march of God's providence with man moves in one immense round. It starts with paradise and then moves out through strange and untried paths until it has fulfilled its grand revolution by coming back to the point from which it started. Now, it's interesting, uh, what we'd expect perhaps this to be the case, that the book of Genesis begins with the story of how God created the world and how life began. It tells us there about Adam and Eve and how that God breathed life into Adam. He made him a living soul, and he put Adam into this perfect environment of the Garden of Eden. And we don't know how long that Adam lived there. Uh, there are various estimates that are given. Some people think that he was there for only a few hours, and some say, well, maybe a few days. And But most people say that uh, not probably not longer than just a few weeks that Adam was able to live in the Garden of Eden. And we know that Adam was forced to leave that place because he had sinned against God, and God put a curse on Adam because of his disobedience, put a curse on the earth, I should say, and and a death became a, a consequence of that, and Adam had to die. And since that time, the entire world has been laboring under that curse, waiting for it to be lifted. 
Now, the Apostle Paul wrote concerning that in Romans chapter 8. He said, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. And that curse is mentioned here in Revelation 22 in the third verse. And it tells us there that the curse is gone. God's chosen people have been redeemed and now they live in heaven. And there is no curse there. There's no possibility that another curse could ever be imposed. And Adam, having lived only a short time in the Garden of Eden, has nothing compared to what we're going to have in heaven. Because when we are returned to paradise... We will live with God forever and forever. So this chapter in Revelation closes out the story of redemption. That story has been woven throughout every book of the New Testament, every book of the Bible. It's been taught in every age. And the conclusion of it is God's people living an eternal life in the New Jerusalem. Now, beginning in chapter 21, John was given this tour of the New Jerusalem, and the angel gave him the tour. And in the 21st chapter, we find him talking about mostly the outside of the city, talking about the dazzling beauty of it and the composition of it and the architecture of it. And he says that he was taken up into a high mountain to view this place. And then for about, uh, what is it, uh, 17, 18 verses, he goes on there describing what he saw concerning uh, the city. Well, we come to chapter 22, and the first five verses that we have here should have been included with chapter 21. And I brought that up when we began this part of our study that... um, You know, the person who gave us the chapter divisions in the Bible was not inspired. And there are cases where a chapter division comes in the wrong place. And this is one of those. Uh, These first five verses should have been included with chapter 21 because they're all concerned with the same subject. And that is a description of the New Jerusalem. Now, uh, heaven is talked about. Uh, The New Jerusalem or heaven is talked about many times in Scripture. But as we've noted, this is the Bible's most extensive explanation of what heaven is like, the description, the most extensive description that we have in heaven about, uh, or in the Bible about heaven. So we're going to break into these verses here and see what we can learn about uh, life in the New Jerusalem. And uh, we're talking about what happens on the inside now. So I want you to pay attention to the word life because that's actually the theme of these verses. Verse 1 says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. A life then is the theme. And where I want to spend our time tonight is in this first verse as we talk about the water of life. Uh, Sice wrote, These last glimpses of a finished redemption end up with the same images with which the first chapter of human history began. Now, in the book of Genesis, we have the first chapter of human history. And there, Eden is described as a place where there was a river that ran through it, and this river brought a water to the garden to cause the garden to grow. Now, water is certainly a necessity. We know that. Uh, the earth needs water. Uh, the earth, uh, or water is one of the most essential elements that we have uh, for our lives. When um, scientists look for life on other planets, what do they look for? One of 
one of the first things that they look for is there could there possibly be water on the planet and they think that because or at least what they say that what life began in water on the earth that uh, water needs to be present for life to be on one of the other planets and so it just shows you how an essential ingredient that water is it's the makeup it's the sustenance of all life in this world now of course scientists are wrong about how life began man did not begin in water in fact man began in dry dust it was out of the dust of the earth that God created man. But God gave us water as a, as a life-sustaining substance. And as we all know, without water, it would take maybe a few hours, depending on the conditions, or at least or at most just a, a day or two for a person to die if he doesn't have water. Now, if you examine geography, you'll notice that where many of the major cities of the world are built, there's always a good source of water. Water's always a primary consideration, and that's because without water, a city will die. And uh, you study history, and it's kind of interesting when you look at the way that they made sieges against cities, is they would try to stop up the water supply to that city to sort to to make the people have to surrender because they didn't have water and of course food as well and so uh water is so important to these cities one of the fascinating things that you you can do when you go to jerusalem is to visit the place where uh, hezekiah hewed a a tunnel through solid rock and brought water into the city I mean, that's mentioned as one of the uh, great acts of Hezekiah in Second Kings chapter 20, verse 20. It says, And the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made a pool and a conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And then in Second Chronicles it says, This same Hezekiah also stopped the upper water course of Gihon and brought it straight down to the west side of the city of David, and Hezekiah prospered in all of his works. And that tunnel is just, again, just absolutely fascinating that you can walk through that and see how just so many years ago, thousands of years ago, they were able to do this, that, that Hezekiah's men tunneled through that solid rock in order to bring water into Jerusalem. Now, another interesting scripture that we have about life-giving water is found in the book of Ezekiel. I'd like you to turn there, if you would, for just a moment to the 47th chapter. And here, Ezekiel describes a river of water that flows from the temple rock in Jerusalem. And this occurs during the millennium. And this river does something that's very interesting. Uh, This is in Ezekiel chapter 47, beginning in verse number 1. If you'll look there, please. Ezekiel 47, verse number 1. Ezekiel says, afterward, he brought me again under the door of the house. And there he's talking about the temple and the millennial temple. And he brought me to the door of the house and behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. For the forefront of the house stood toward the east, and the waters came down from under the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. Then brought me, uh, brought he me out of the way of the gate northward, and led me about the way without under the utter gate by the way that looketh eastward. And behold, there ran out waters on the right side. And when the man that had the line in his hand went forth eastward, he measured a thousand cubits, and he brought me through the waters waters were to the ankles again he measured a thousand he brought me through the waters the waters were to the knees again he measured a thousand 
and brought me through. The waters were to the loins. Afterward, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass over, for the waters were risen, waters to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. And he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen this? Then he brought me and caused me to return to the brink of the river. Now when I returned, behold, at the bank of the river were very many trees on the one side and on the other. Then said he unto me, These waters issue out toward the east country and go down into the desert and go into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, whithersoever the river shall come, shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish... Because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed. And everything shall live whither the river cometh. And it shall come to pass that the fishers shall stand upon it from Engedi, even unto Eglium. They shall be a place to spread forth nets. Their fish shall be according to their kinds, as the fish of the great sea, exceeding many. Let me tell you why that is such a really fascinating scripture. The water that it's talking about here flows from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem down to the south. And verse number 8 says that it goes into the desert, into the sea. And the sea that it's talking about there is the Dead Sea. Now, the Dead Sea has the name dead because there is no life in it. You see, when the Bible uses the word dead, it means dead, just like it does in Ephesians 2 verse 1 where it speaks of man being dead in trespasses and sin. Dead means dead. And I really can't understand why smart preachers don't understand that, uh, what it means to be dead in sin, but regardless of that, that's a subject for another message. But when you go down to the Dead Sea, you understand why that it's named that way. It's the lowest point on earth, and the water there is, is just thick with all different kinds of minerals and salts, and there's no life there. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea. Now, it's a beautiful place. I have a, a, one of the pictures that we took, and you can see uh, the, the Dead Sea is really a beautiful spot when you're looking at it from a distance. Uh, I'm not sure where this particular uh, picture was taken from, but I remember when we were in Masada up on that uh, fortress there. I think Masada is about 1,300 feet or something like that above, sea, um, above the uh, plain there. And you can see the Dead Sea off in, in the distance, and it's really a beautiful place. But the water that's there really belies that beauty because it's, it's not life-giving water. There's nothing that can live in that sea. Well, very close to the Dead Sea is a place called Engedi, which has some great historical biblical significance. That's where David went to hide out from Saul when he was pursuing him. And so um, uh, David went to Engedi, and Engedi is really a beautiful place. It's really close to the Dead Sea. I mean, just, just not minutes away from it. And Engedi has these beautiful pools of water, water that cascades over the rocks and flows into these pools. I have a picture of that as well. And, and it's really, Engedi is just a really beautiful place. So being very close together, it's, it's remarkable the difference that you see between the two. Now, I remember when we were at the Dead Sea that I, I waded out into the water, and the water is just, to me, was nasty. I mean, it's just like slimy stuff all over you. Now, I have a picture, actually, of Gary floating on the Dead Sea, and, and I'm not showing that picture in order to protect innocent eyes, so I won't show you that one. But... Um, 
I don't, I don't know how why he would do that. I mean, I know why he did it. I mean, that's what people do. But you couldn't stand it very long, can you? I mean, just it's not not a place that you want to. You just don't want to go swimming there. Trust me on that. Uh, but the, the water's just just terrible. Now, if you look here in Ezekiel 47, again, in verses 9 and 10, it says, And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, whithersoever the river shall come, shall live, and there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed. And everything shall live under the, uh, whither the river cometh. And it shall come to pass that fishers shall stand upon it from Engedi even to an Eglium. They shall be a place to spread forth nets. Their fish shall be according to their kinds as the fish of the great sea exceeding many so it says there that people will come over from these beautiful pools of Engedi and they'll come to the Dead Sea because that pure water that flows out of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem will come down and it will fill up the Dead Sea and it will make it a place that's teeming with fish and it compares it here to the fish in the Mediterranean Sea there'll be so many fish there now, again, you really can't get the impact of that statement unless you were to visit both of those places and see the difference between En Gedi and the Dead Sea. Well, this is what this life-giving water does, is it flows from the Temple Mount. Now, one, one is life, En Gedi, as it is now, is life, and the other is death. But when God gets through with the Dead Sea, it's swallowed up, and new life inhabits it. And that's really just an amazing picture that we have in the book of Ezekiel to show us that let life is attached to water. And it's, it's trying to teach us something here that like eternal life flows from the fountain of God like water. And I think this part of the New Jerusalem is easy for us to understand. Uh, the river of water represents a life-sustaining force. Now, if you'll turn over to the fourth chapter of John, we can see here how that... Jesus relied on water as a metaphor for life when he was speaking to the woman at the well. And if you look in the fourth chapter there in verse number 9, Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman, and uh, she's talking with him. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, asketh drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou this living water? Now thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water, springing up into everlasting life. Now there Jesus used water to symbolize salvation. Salvation in Christ is the way that we receive eternal life. And the Bible speaks of that in a way as being thirsting after water. Water is used as a, as a symbol of how that we can't be satisfied unless we receive the life-giving water, everlasting life that comes through the belief of the gospel of Christ. And so the scriptures picture man as thirsting for life. 
And this is what people do. They, they seek for a way that they can live after death. And God has put that into every person's heart to know there is something that comes after death. And that searching for what that is is compared to a person who's thirsting after it, a person thirsting for life. And here we learn that Jesus is the water of life. He's the way that thirsting spirits can be satisfied. And we've sung that great song. I like what this song says. I thirsted in the barren land of sin and shame, and nothing satisfying there I found. But to the blessed cross of Christ one day I came, where springs of living water did abound. Drinking at the springs of living water, happy now am I, my soul they satisfy. Drinking at the springs of living water, a wonderful and bountiful supply. Isn't that a great song? Janet was singing about that this morning. Those are springs of living water that we find at the cross of Jesus Christ. He's the water of everlasting life. And then water for life was also a metaphor that's used in the New Testament for the children of Israel as they were thirsting in the desert. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink of the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock which followed them and that rock was Christ. The water that flowed out of the rock was a picture of the life that we have in Christ. You remember that story? How that Israel was thirsting in the desert and had no water and they complained to God. They complained to Moses and God told Moses to do something to the rock. You remember what that was? Told Moses to strike the rock. And that was a symbol of Jesus Christ, a symbol that he would be smitten that Christ had to die in order for us to have life in him. And I think that when we get to heaven, these kinds of things are, are going to be a perpetual remembrance for us as to why we are in that place. The only reason that we are in heaven is because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. He was smitten for us. He had to die in order to give us this river of spiritual life. And so maybe we will sing in heaven, but to the blessed cross of Christ one day I came where springs of living water did abound. And so this is one of the reasons that we find this picture of water in the New Jerusalem. It's because it symbolizes the water of life, of everlasting life. Now let's notice a couple of particulars about this river in heaven. First of all, it represents the purity of life. It is a pure river of water. You know, there's nothing nastier than a polluted stream I mean, there's a foul stench that comes from polluted water. Well, this stream is pure because it represents the the washing of regeneration. Salvation is a cleansing process in, in which we're washed from the pollution of our sins. Now, there's some people who like to allegorize this text, and they try to find certain symbols that aren't actually here. And so you'll find some people that'll teach on this passage, and they will say that the water here represents baptism. That sins are washed away in baptism. And we talked about this a little bit this morning in our Sunday morning forum class. This is one of the reasons that Roman Catholics started baptizing babies. The purpose was to wash away original sin. And so they figured the sooner that you do it, the better off that you are. 
But water here does not represent baptism. And neither original sin nor committed sins are washed away in the waters of baptism. Our sins are remitted because of our faith in Christ and because of our faith alone. Now someone asked me, and we've also talked about this, why don't you baptize babies? Babies aren't capable of saving faith. And every example that we have in the New Testament of those that have been baptized or those that made a, or repented of their sins and made a volitional uh, volitional choice of saving faith. Now we notice also that the river flows out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And that shows us that the source of life is God. It shows us that God is sovereign in salvation. Life does not come from within man. Life doesn't come because of the obedience to commandments. Life does not come to us because faith originates in us. But the source of our salvation is God. And there is no life except as God grants life. And then you'll also notice again here that the water comes from the throne of God and of the Lamb. One of the questions that we have coming up in our Sunday morning form class that was sent to me, how do we, how do we explain that Jesus is God? And I didn't know exactly how to answer that question. How can Jesus be God? I'm going to talk about this probably next week. How can Jesus be God? And the real answer to that question, there's no way I can know how that Jesus can be God. The only thing that I can do is read the Bible that says that he is God. And there is all kinds of explanation on, on, and proofs that he is God. And here is one of those proofs right here. Because it, it says that this water froze from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And that's just another way that the Bible teaches the equality of the Godhead and the oneness of the Godhead. There's Father and Son that are one in essence and they're one in being. And there are also some that have taught that this water, as it proceeds from the throne of God and of the Lamb, is emblematic of the Holy Spirit that proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so if that's true, then we have another text, uh, another proof in our text here of the Trinity, that God is a triune God. He exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's particularly important as it shows the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, cults deny the full deity of Christ and, and their, his identification as Jehovah God and his equality with the Father. And I remind you of what we've said, talked about so often in the book of First John, that you can't miss this, that Jesus is God. You can't miss that and still be saved. You can't miss that and possess eternal life. Now, this is a crystal river, and that again speaks of its purity. In the original language, that word crystal uh, or clear there rather uh, where it talks about it being a clear river comes from the Greek word lampros which means bright and shining and of course that's in keeping with the character of God and of the city light is a very prominent feature in the new Jerusalem because the glory of God is associated with light and so as this river flows out of the throne of God it cascades uh, down through the city and from the throne like a bright shining crystal And so the purity of the river speaks of purity of life in heaven. There is no sin there. There there is no one that is defiled there. God has given life to defiled sinner. He cleans him up. He washes the stain of his sin away. And when we come into our resurrected bodies, the corruption of the body is gone. We are purified. And so the corruption of sin then is over forever. Now secondly, we would notice about it 
the prosperity of life. In Psalm 46, verse 4, it says, There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. And in Psalm 36, it says, How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see light. Now we're going to be abundantly satisfied when we drink of the river of God's pleasures. So this full flowing river symbolizes an abundant life. Wherever there is a river, there is prosperity. And I was thinking about that, prosperity, and thinking about water and how where there's water, there is life. And and I was thinking about how that the children of Israel, when Joseph was promoted to second in command in Egypt uh, next to Pharaoh, that God blessed them, and Pharaoh moved Israel into the land of Goshen. Does anybody know where the land of Goshen is? Well, I'll tell you. Goshen is in the area of the delta of the Nile River. And so it was a very lush, green place. There was plenty of water that was there. And when the people lived there, that water uh, uh, was so abundant that they prospered. Their lives were, were really good there. Let me read to you from Exodus chapter, 20, uh, chapter 1. It says, And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. So you have the children of Israel living in the land of Goshen. And can you imagine this? The Egyptians become afraid of them because God had prospered them so greatly that they became more in number and actually mightier than the Egyptians. So where there is water, there is prosperity. And in heaven, we have this river of water, and that symbolizes an abundant life, that there is prosperity in heaven. We inherit the riches of God and of his kingdom. We never thirst. We never hunger again. There is where we enter into the rest of God. And that's a beautiful picture that we have from the crystal stream that flows from the throne of God. Now, I want to make one more observation about the river than we threw for tonight. Some people question this. Is this water like we think of water? Is this H2O? Or is this some other substance that John, uh, that just reminded John of water? Now, I don't really know the answer to that question. There are some things I do know. I do know there's no hydrological cycle in heaven. There is no sea there. So there's no evaporation of water. There's no rain that comes to replenish the river. The source of this water is from the throne of God, and it tells us that it flows, or it flows continuously. And where the water goes, I don't know. It flows all the way throughout heaven, and it seems that if it keeps flowing and flowing and flowing for eternity, what would happen? Heaven fills up with water. Then what are you going to do? So I don't know what God does with it. Some people say, well, what happens is it flows from the throne of God, works its way through heaven, then it flows down upon the new earth, and it waters the entire new earth. Because there is no hydrological cycle, there is no, no um, rain or anything like that. Something must water the earth. And so that's how they describe it. And then I don't know, maybe God does it like a fountain works here, that he recycles the water back up through the throne. It comes over and over and over again. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us about that. But I do know that 
we don't have the same requirements in the new Jerusalem and on the new earth as we have today. Uh, the, the, the creation is a, is a different type of creation. The physics of heaven are going to be quite different from what we have now. So there's not any way that we can really know this. And we also know that there's no need for water in heaven, at least not from a physiological standpoint. I mean, our bodies are not going to be 98% water as they are now, and so we don't have to have it for our physiology. So is it H2O or is it some other substance? That's one of the things you have to wait to get to heaven to find out about. We just don't know about this. At least to John, it looked to him like a sparkling, shining, crystal clear river of water. So whatever it is, I know that it's going to be refreshing. I know that it represents salvation. It represents cleansing. It represents life. It represents the glory of God. And maybe when we get to heaven, all of us are going to be singing there, happy now am I, my soul is satisfied. I mean, I'm quite sure that we're going to sing something like that, a pure river of water that reminds us of our salvation in Jesus Christ. What a beautiful place heaven is going to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, just uh, to think about heaven, uh, think about what life is going to be there, just so far above us, beyond our comprehension. How could we ever, how could we ever just describe a place like this? Lord, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you for Jesus Christ who supplies us with what we need the most, salvation, being saved from our sins. We just thank you for Jesus who's done that for us. Bless us tonight, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's